The city is set to reopen in July, but the governor says the mayor is being irresponsible. President Biden lays out his economic plans and is Putin losing steam in Russia. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, April 29, 2021. The United States economy is achieving a remarkably fast recovery from the recession that ripped through the nation last year on the heels of the coronavirus and cost tens of millions of Americans their jobs and businesses. Last quarter, the economy grew an impressive 6.4% rate, and expectations are the current quarter will be even better. People seeking unemployment is down, and the National Association of Realtors said the number of Americans buying homes is steadily increasing. Mayor Bill de Blasio announced a July 1st reopening for the city earlier today. It's time to set a goal for a full reopening in New York City, and that goal is July 1st. We are ready to bring New York City back fully on July 1st. All systems go because you've earned it. We're going to keep working hard every day to make this city safer and safer. But what you have done, everyday New Yorkers, what you have done is the reason I can make this announcement today. Because you've gone out, you've gotten vaccinated, you've done so much to fight through this crisis. Now we can see that light at the end of the tunnel. What does it mean? It means we get to Go back to so many of the things we love. It means so many jobs get to come back and soon. It means that the things that make New York City special will be clearer than ever this summer. This is going to be the summer of New York City. De Blasio adds he wants to see restaurants, hair salons, gyms, arenas, and other venues operating at full capacity. Businesses will still be able to require that patrons wear masks or show proof of vaccination. The goal here is to prepare this city for a full reopening. We know that's going to take some work, and it will take work for different uh, businesses and institutions to get ready for that. But it's also time to keep getting more and more people vaccinated. I said a long time ago, back in January, our goal is to get 5 million New Yorkers fully vaccinated by the end of June. We're still working on that goal. Uh, This synergizes perfectly with that. We're actually seeing even better indicators now. And again, this is the data and the science talking. We're seeing better indicators in terms of health care than we even expected at this point. And this is the power of vaccination. When you do 6.4 million vaccinations, you're going to see an impact. And we're seeing it. But we'll have even more time to get ready and go much deeper between now and July 1st. At his own press conference, Governor Andrew Cuomo called it irresponsible to make projections about when cities can reopen, saying he prefers to make adjustments gradually. He then said that he hopes to get New York City to reopen fully before July 1st. I don't want to wait that long, he said. I think if we do what we have to do, we can be reopened earlier. About 2.5 million New Yorkers are fully vaccinated. De Blasio said he still expects the city to meet its goal of 5 million residents fully vaccinated in June. Despite the number of daily vaccinations declining steadily since the first week of April and lagging vaccinations in many parts of the city that were hardest hit by the pandemic. And in international news, Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas said today the main factions have decided to delay the first elections planned in 15 years, citing a dispute with Israel over voting in East Jerusalem. Israel has yet to allow voting by mail as in past elections and has enforced a ban on Palestinian Authority activities, including campaign events. The last elections in 2006 saw Abbas rivals for Hamas win a landslide victory after campaigning as anti-corruption underdogs, but in recent years Hamas' popularity has also declined. 
And India's total COVID-19 cases passed 18 million on Thursday after another world record number of daily infections. As grave diggers worked round the clock to bury victims and hundreds more were cremated in makeshift pyres in parks and parking lots. India reported 379,000 new infections and 3,600 new deaths on Thursday. Health Ministry data showed that there was the highest number of fatalities in a single day since the start of the pandemic. The world's second most populous nation is in deep crisis, with hospitals and morgues overwhelmed. And in the United States, last night, President Joe Biden addressed the nation in an hour-long speech that touched on many of the issues galvanizing Americans since last year's elections. Biden began by acknowledging a first to women, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Vice President Kamala Harris, in the top spots behind the dais for the first time in American history. Thank you all, Madam Speaker, Madam Vice President. No president has ever said those words from this podium. No president has ever said those words. And it's about time. And then Biden addressed the January 6th invasion of the U.S. Capitol and America's problems with domestic terrorism. The image of a violent mob assaulting this Capitol, desecrating our democracy, remain vivid in all our minds. Lives were put at risk, many of your lives. Lives were lost. Extraordinary courage was summoned. The insurrection was an existential crisis, a test of whether our democracy could survive, and it did. But the struggle is far from over. The question of whether our democracy will long endure is both ancient and urgent. As old as our republic, still vital today. Can our democracy deliver on its promise? that all of us, created equal in the image of God, had a chance to lead lives of dignity, respect, and possibility. Can our democracy deliver the most, to the most pressing needs of our people? Can our democracy overcome the lies, anger, hate, and fears that have pulled us apart? America's adversaries, the autocrats of the world, are betting we can't. And I promise you they're betting we can't. They believe we're too full of anger and division and rage. They look at the images of the mob that assaulted the Capitol as proof that the sun is sending on American democracy. But they're wrong. You know it, I know it. But we have to prove them wrong. Biden went on to announce his signature demand. Let's raise the minimum wage to $15. No one, no one working 40 hours a week no one working 40 hours a week should live below the poverty line. We need to ensure greater equity and opportunity for women. And while we're doing this, let's get the Paycheck Fairness Act to my desk as well, equal pay. It's been much too long. And if you wonder whether it's too long, look behind me. And then the president went on to declare that fixing America's infrastructure will not only help the poor, but create jobs. Up to 10 million homes in America and more than 400,000 schools and childcare centers have pipes with lead in them, including drinking water. A clear and present danger to our children's health. American Jobs Plan creates jobs replacing 100 percent of the nation's lead pipes and service lines so every American can drink clean water. 
and the process will create thousands and thousands of good-paying jobs. The president made a strong commitment to LGBTQ rights as well. I also hope Congress will get to my desk the Equality Act to protect LGBTQ Americans. <laughs> For all transgender Americans watching at home, especially young people, you're so brave. I want you to know your president has your back. Another thing. Let's authorize the Violence Against Women Act, which has been law for 27 years. <laughs> 27 years ago, I wrote it. Close the boyfriend loophole. To keep guns out of the hands of abusers, the court order said this is an abuser. You can't own a gun. And he addressed the George Floyd bill to fix policing in America, now being debated behind closed doors in the United States Senate. White supremacy is terrorism. We're not going to ignore that either. My fellow Americans, look, we have to come together to heal the soul of this nation. It was nearly a year ago before her father's funeral when I spoke with Gianna Floyd, George Floyd's young daughter. She's a little tight, so I was kneeling down to talk to her so I could look her in the eye. She looked at me, she said, my daddy changed the world. Well, after the conviction of George Floyd's murderer, we can see how right she was if, if we have the courage to act as a Congress. We've all seen the knee of injustice on the neck of black Americans. Now's our opportunity to make some real progress, to rebuild trust between law enforcement and the people they serve, to root out systemic racism in our criminal justice system and to enact police reform in George Floyd's name that passed the House already. I know Republicans have their own ideas and are engaged in a very productive discussions with Democrats in the Senate. We need to work together to find a consensus. But let's get it done next month by the first anniversary of George Floyd's death. And how does Biden expect to pay for his plans? By raising taxes on the rich. I will not impose any tax increase on people making less than $400,000. But it's time for corporate America and the wealthiest 1% of Americans to just begin to pay their fair share. Just their fair share. Sometimes I have arguments with my friends in the Democratic Party. I think you should be able to become a billionaire and a millionaire, but pay your fair share. A recent study shows that 55 of the nation's biggest corporations paid zero federal tax last year. Those 55 corporations made in excess of $40 billion in profit. A lot of companies also evade taxes through tax havens in Switzerland and Bermuda and the Cayman Islands. And they benefit from tax loopholes and deductions for offshoring jobs and shifting profits overseas. It's not right. We're going to reform corporate taxes so they pay their fair share and help pay for the public investments their businesses will benefit from as well. 
Biden's address was followed by a GOP rebuttal by Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, the only black Republican in the Senate, who talked about his life being raised by a single mother. Original sin is never the end of the story, not in our souls and not for our nation. The real story is always redemption. I am standing here because my mom has prayed me. And then Scott raised the GOP's favorite scare word, socialism. A president who promised to bring us together should not be pushing agendas that tear us apart. The American family deserves better. And we know what better looks like. Just before COVID, we had the most inclusive economy in my lifetime. The lowest unemployment rate ever recorded for African-Americans, Hispanics, and Asians, and a 70-year low nearly for women. Wages were, hear me, wages were growing faster at the bottom than at the top because Republicans focused on expanding opportunity for all Americans. We fought the drug epidemic, rebuilt our military, and cut taxes for working families and single moms like the one that raised me. Our best future will not come from Washington schemes or socialist dreams. It will come from you, the American people. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. The Biden administration on Tuesday announced it would move forward with a dramatic deregulation of addiction medicine, first proposed by the Trump administration in January. The change would allow almost any prescriber to treat patients using the drug buprenorphine, considered one of the most effective medications for opioid addiction. Currently, doctors, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners must undergo a separate training and apply for a waiver before they're allowed to prescribe the drug to patients. For years, many addiction physicians and public health advocates have argued that the X waiver, as the special buprenorphine license is known, poses a barrier to basic care for patients with opioid addiction. In particular, many have argued that if a doctor can prescribe potentially addictive prescription pain drugs, they should be able to prescribe the medicine used to treat the addiction. Sarah Evans is Director of International Harm Reduction for the Open Society Public Health Program. It is itself a synthetic opioid. It is used to treat opioid use disorder, acute pain, and chronic pain. It's under prescription from a doctor. Generally, it can be taken orally, and it will save off withdrawal symptoms and essentially provide a person the ability to resist withdrawal and to not have to go back to using illicit drugs. Aren't you just getting people hooked on one opiate instead of another? Why is that different? The reason that the WHO and others accept buprenorphine as among the gold standards for treatment is that it has a long history of being proven to um, help people get off and stay off street drugs. Essentially, by preventing people from feeling withdrawal, it allows them to stabilize their lives and do whatever else they need in order to move forward out of their addiction. Why not methadone? Why is this any different than methadone? It's a matter of choice. There's some indication that methadone, that there's less of an ability for um, buprenorphine to be used inappropriately. It's considered to be somewhat safer, but honestly, they're both perfectly fine. And frankly, for that matter, so is heroin prescription. 
What about the addiction? Is that a problem? They're talking about the addiction, and, and I assume that's why the government banned these drugs for so long and are just coming around to it because they wanted to stave off addiction. People need to understand that opioid use disorder is a chronic relapsing condition. So in some cases, it depends on the person. What people need to understand is that addiction to opiates for many people is a chronic relapsing condition. And so it may be necessary for people to be receiving medication for some time, even for the rest of their lives, the same as for the treatment of diabetes or any other chronic condition. Is this a step towards legalizing other opiates in the United States? I don't really think that uh, opioid use disorder is a vice. Like, it's not actually a really fun situation. It's not actually a very fun condition for people to be experiencing, which is something that we normally would associate with a vice. Decriminalization of drugs in this country is a good idea. However, in this case, the question is somewhat different. Buprenorphine is just a standard medicine that is available in many countries in the world that is advised by the WHO, as I said, and that is legal in this country. And so all that is happening now with the removal of the X waiver is that um, there has been a move by the administration to take the shackles off of physicians and let them prescribe this medicine to patients in need the same as they would any other medicine. Who's opposing this? I think that there's a lot of buy-in by the administration into the need to do this. And also, look, we are in the middle of a huge overdose crisis. I know a lot of tension is paid to the COVID pandemic, understandably, but behind that, there is, there has been, and there is a growing opioid overdose epidemic. Some 90,000 people died of an opioid overdose in this country in the past year. Those rates are increasing, and they are increasing most rapidly amongst communities of color. So there's a real need for us to just do what we can to make sure that all forms of treatment are available. And I think that's why the administration is taking the step to expand access to buprenorphine. Sarah Evans is Director of International Harm Reduction for the Open Society Public Health Program. And in more national news, a Moscow court on Tuesday restricted the activities of an organization founded by imprisoned opposition leader Alexei Navalny, pending a decision on whether it and his offices across Russia should be outlawed as extremist groups. The ruling on the foundation for fighting corruption by the Moscow City Court was another step in the sweeping crackdown on Navalny, his allies, and his political infrastructure. The Moscow Prosecutor's Office had petitioned the court to label the foundation and Navalny's network of regional offices as extremist groups and effectively outlaw their activities. Such a move would expose members and supporters to lengthy prison terms. If the court grants a request, it would be a crippling blow to the beleaguered team of Navalny, who is President Vladimir Putin's most prominent critic. Navalny has been behind bars since January, and many of his aides and associates were arrested or face criminal charges. Columbia University professor Timothy Fry is author of Weak Strongman, The Limits of Power in Putin's Russia. He says growing unrest in Russia is because Putin's grip on power is slipping. There was massive support for the annexation of Crimea, but on just about every other foreign policy, an aggressive foreign policy is not very popular. So there's not much support for the intervention in Syria. There's not much support for bringing Russian troops into eastern Ukraine. Very little support for annexing Belarus. We often think that there's this massive anti-Westernism in Russia, and it's just not the case when it comes to foreign policy. 
They seem to yeah. really be not really looking for a war or trouble with anybody, but playing for uh, whatever advantages they can get, which advantage to this yeah. question. What about Russia and Trump? What was that all about? And getting into this whole thing about their cyber warriors making war on the U.S.? A lot of what the, the, the Russians do in the cybersphere are things that lots of other countries do. Cyber espionage is something that many countries engage in. Russia is a little different from some of the other countries in that it's, it's much more active around election times. The Chinese are trying to steal corporate secrets. North Koreans are trying to target companies like Sony that make the great leader angry. Russia really does try to influence elections. One of the things I show in the book, though, is that they're not very successful at doing this because it's extremely difficult to use social media to try to, to move public opinion on any scale. And the Russians are really clumsy at it just because there's so much other information out there about politics that it's very difficult for Russian voices to break through. Trump's relation with Putin was like his relations with lots of other autocrats. He seemed to really have this penchant for them from Erdogan to Duterte, but he did kind of hold Putin in, in, in special esteem for some reason. Putin's success in using a Russia first type of approach that's similar to the America first approach to get yeah, power. But- yeah, that could very, very well could be. Where does that bring us now with uh, Biden? He's uh, instituted sanctions against Russia. Where does it go from here? In the Trump era, we had two Russia policies. We had the Trump-Russia policy, and then we had the, the Russian policy that Congress was putting forward. Even for the Russians, they found that exhausting. And now they may not like the message as much, but at least it's a consistent message and a message that they can make policy around. Biden's policies towards Russia are a very familiar mix of carrots and sticks, cooperate on issues where there's some mutual overlap, like arms control, or nuclear nonproliferation, perhaps on terrorism, and continue to compete on other issues, particularly around security arrangements in Europe. The Kremlin is interested in talking with the White House. The White House is interested in turning down the temperature a little bit on U.S.-Russian relations. We're likely to see a summit in June. Relations are at such a low level right now, it's going to take a lot of effort on both sides to improve them. Columbia University professor Timothy Fry is author of Weak Strongman, The Limits of Power in Putin's Russia. And finally, Rudy Giuliani on Thursday afternoon derided federal raids of his home and office in New York as being conducted under false pretenses, claiming the Department of Justice ignored proof that he filed as a foreign agent. Speaking on his WABC radio show, Giuliani, former President Donald Trump's personal attorney, only briefly addressed the search warrants that federal investigators executed Wednesday, calling them a violation of his constitutional rights. The full scope of the investigation is unclear, but law enforcement officials say it at least partly involves the Ukraine dealings. Giuliani denied reports that the warrants were focused on him, pressuring Ukrainian officials on behalf of Trump, claiming they were actually about failing to file as a foreign agent. The former America's mayor of New York City said he'll provide more details on the Tucker Carlson Tonight program. And that's some of the news for Thursday, April 29th, 2021. The news is produced Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.